And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred. That great theme music as ever is by Roger Craig of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. So today might be near the middle of March already. Whew going to be springtime here in Maine, um, but though it's the middle of March, maybe for one more week, we will be featuring Sci-Fi February. It's a theme I just have trouble letting go of, my friends. Uh, it has been a blast featuring all of these great artists with you, starting with the compelling new podcasts, Witch Hunter Chronicles, Edict Zero, um, plenty of new stuff coming out there. Leviathan Chronicles has some new special stuff as well. Throw a special shout out to them. Um, and my own work with Final Room Productions, and we're going to culminate now with a mighty, mighty classic. This is from 1984 NPR, Bradbury. 13. Uh, now, if you're already a radio drama buff, you know how exciting this is, uh, but if not, I will fill you in. Um, as I said, this was done uh, 25 years ago, beautifully rendered in stereo sound, produced in an era when uh, radio drama could also get funded. Um, actually, there was money out there, and it was on NPR, which meant it broadcast all across the country. It's kind of a very different world and in a weird uh, full circle kind of thing here uh, 25 years later plus um, we're NPR Corporation for Public Broadcasting featuring fa- facing all of these uh, federal uh, cuts uh, threats to, to cut the funding um, that's the kind of thing that makes it so radio drama productions like this uh, don't happen uh, it uh, sort of effectively killed uh, radio drama on NPR when uh, funding was removed by in the Reagan administration um, sort of a sad part of the story there if you are a fan of radio drama um, but we have this beautiful gem um, to show you what NPR at the top of its game could help commission. And it was the start of a, a wonderful career by uh, Mike McDonough, um, who I had an opportunity to learn about and to learn from and talk to as part of uh, researching this show. Um, he got some money, um, I think somewhere around $120,000 to produce this serial, which is something kind of unheard of for a lot of people nowadays. Um, that Those resources allowed... Um, him to invest time in, in creating this breathtaking sound design and wonderful music and, and great performances and to really lovingly adapt these uh, shows by Ray Bradbury. Excuse me, the, uh, these lovingly adapt these short stories by Ray Bradbury. Um, these these short stories by Ray Bradbury. Uh, you know, adaptations which I think rival any others done in audio and even any other do, done in any other medium. This is just really, really wonderfully done and... Um, show off how the radio drama uh, medium can can really come alive and bring stories to life and put them into your imagination. And the the show we're about to hear is a, a wonderful symbol of that. It's called A Sound of Thunder. Basically established what a uh, dinosaur should sound like. <laughs> there don't think there are too many precedents before that. Um, so anyways, like I said, Mike McDonough's gone on to a fruitful career in sound design. He's worked on everything from the later Star Trek films to the IMAX experience. One thing I learned during all this is that IMAX films are recorded in complete silence so all of the larger than life sounds that try to make the sound as big as the screen there um is created by a sound designer like him and we talked to him later in the second half of this show about that um but first sit back get on a nice pair of um headphones or a nice pair of stereo monitors you're gonna love this a sound of thunder from the collection bradbury 13 enjoy this is ray bradbury join me on a tour through time and space. Come along to the far future. Follow me into a strange past with stories that almost could be or might have been. Real or unreal, this is Bradbury 13.
they wipe the blood from their helmets. The monster lay a hill of solid flesh. Within it, you could hear the sighs and murmurs as the furthest chambers died. The organs malfunctioning. Liquids running a final instant from pocket to sack to spleen. Everything shutting off. Closing up. Forever. Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder. Say, how much longer is this going to take? Be patient, Mr. Eccles. These things take time. Yeah, well, how long does it take to make a phone call? I'm sure Mr. Spalner is doing all he can. Well, I wish he'd do it a little quicker. I've still got to pack and tidy things up at the office. I've got a pretty full schedule, too, you know. I'm well aware of that, Mr. Eccles. And we're doing everything we can to speed things up. But there's quite a bit of paperwork involved here. Yeah, things are rough all over. That's why I need a break. I need to get away from everything for a while. And this trip ought to be just the ticket. Oh, here's Mr. Spalner now. It's about time. Well, good news, Mr. Eccles. I just got off the phone. Everything checks out fine. I told you it would. Could have saved you the trouble. Well, you can't blame us for being careful, can you? I suppose not. Now all we need from you is $25,000, and we're all set. Will you take a personal check? Of course. Well, naturally, we've checked your credit, and everything is fine. Naturally. Like I said, we can't be too careful. Just make it out to Time Safari Incorporated. Time Safari Inc. There you go. $25,000. Thank you, Mr. Eggles. I promise you the time of your life. For that much dough, it better be. You know, I can't believe I'm really going on the safari. A time safari? Yeah. Say, does this safari guarantee I come back alive? Mr. Eggles, the only thing we guarantee is what's stated in our brochure. You name any year in the past and any animal, we'll take you there and you shoot it. It's also on the sign above your head. That's all we guarantee. Fair enough. And as far as coming back alive, well, I believe that's all part of the lure of the hunt, huh? The element of surprise, man against beast and all that, huh? <laughs> but I'm sure you'll do just fine. Ah, hey, look, don't you worry about me. I've been on safaris before. Yes, I'm sure you have. And now, if you'll follow me, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Step right in, Mr. Eccles. And what's this? Now, this is our departure area. Impressive, isn't it? Oh, Travis! Now, come over here a minute. Mr. Eccles, I'd like you to meet Bill Travis, your safari guide in the past. How do you do? Hello. Travis will tell you what to shoot and where to shoot. If he says no shooting, then no shooting. If you disobey instructions, there's a penalty of another $10,000 plus possible government action on your return. Do you understand? I understand. Is that the machine? That's it. A real-time machine. I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. Well, take a good look at it. It's a real thing. There are only two other like it in the world. One in Paris and one in Tokyo. It's 
smaller than I thought. A whole six people, plus supplies, food, and our rifles, of course. It makes you think, doesn't it? If the election had gone badly yesterday, I might be here now trying to run away from the results. I mean, if Keith hadn't won, if Deutscher had become president of the United States... Oh, we're lucky, all right. If Deutscher had gotten in, we'd have the worst kind of dictatorship. That man's anti-everything. Anti-intellectual, anti-human, anti-religion. You know, some people called up half-joking. Said that if Deutscher became president, they wanted to go live in 1492. <laughs> some of them weren't joking. Of course, it's not our business to conduct escapes. We form safaris. Anyway, Keith's in now, so all you have to worry about is shooting your dinosaur. A Tyrannosaurus Rex. You promised me that. A Tyrannosaurus Rex. The Thunder Lizard. The biggest, most dangerous monster in history. A meat-eater and not afraid of another living thing. Maybe. But that was 50 million years ago. And that's exactly where you're headed. Tomorrow morning. But first, you'll have to sign this. We'll have it notarized for you. What is it? It's a release. If anything happens to you, we're not responsible. What? Those dinosaurs are hungry. They can crush you like a moth or swallow you in one bite. <laughs> are you trying to scare me? Mr. Eccles, you must understand our position. If you were to act out of fear and something unforeseen... What Spawner is trying to tell you is that we don't want you on the safari if you're going to panic and get yourself killed, or maybe one of us. I can take care of myself. Let me tell you something, Eccles. We had four safari leaders and six hunters killed last year, all because of panic. We're here to give you the biggest thrill a real hunter could ever ask for. We'll take you back 50 million years to back the biggest, most ferocious game of all time. But you'll do it our way or you won't do it. Your check's on the table. You could tear it up. Now, where do I sign? Here. Mr. Travis, he's all yours. Gentlemen, please step in and have a seat. My assistant will take your weapons and store them for you. Be careful with that rifle, boy. That's a handmade stock on there. Yes, sir. Wade's a good man, Eccles. He may be young, but he's been on a dozen safaris with me. You listen to him, and you may get back alive. All set, sir. Good. Secure the hatch. Securing the hatch? Control, this is TS-1. Go ahead, Travis. We're locked down and preparing for automatic departure sequence. Affirmative. Good hunting. Thanks, Control. Gentlemen, welcome aboard Time Safari One. Mr. Eccles, have you met your fellow hunters, Mr. Billings and Mr. Kramer? How do you do? Nice to meet you. Ain't this something? Gentlemen, there'll be some physical sensation, so please fasten your seatbelts. The entire trip should take about 18 minutes. Switch on. Switching on. Hey, Travis. Can these guns really stop a dinosaur cold? If you hit him right. Some dinosaurs have two brains. One in the head, another near the tail. Go for the eyes. If you can blind him, then go for the brain. 
We're on our way. Every hunter that ever lived would envy us today. I'll say. This will make Africa look like Illinois. Yeah, look out the window. The building's gone. Hey, it's night. No, no, it's day. It's night again. Uh, everything's a blur. It's spinning. Hang on, everyone. been born. Moses has not gone to the mountain to talk with God. The pyramids are still in the earth waiting to be cut out and put up. Remember that. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, none of them exist. That out there is the jungle of 50 million 2,055 years before President Keith. Hey, there's a path out there. That's a metal anti-gravity path laid by Time Safari for your use. It floats six inches off the ground, doesn't touch so much as one grass blade, one flower, one tree. Stay on it. Don't go off the path, not for any reason. If you fall off, there's a $10,000 fine and legal action on your return. And don't shoot anything we don't okay. Why? We don't want to change the future. You've got to understand something. We don't belong here in the past. We're intruders. Besides, the government doesn't like us here. Well, I, uh, I should think it would encourage scientific research. The government's not interested in digging around in the past. Not knowing it, we might kill an important animal, a small bird, a roach, even a flower. We could destroy an important link in the growing chain. <laughs> Are you kidding? There's millions of birds and insects. So what if I squash a bug? All right, say we accidentally kill one mouse here. Yeah. Well, that means all the future families of this one mouse are destroyed, right? Well, so they're dead. Who needs mice anyway? What about the foxes that'll need those mice to survive? For one of ten mice, a fox dies. For one of ten foxes, a lion starves. For one of a lion, all manner of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos. Eventually, 49 million years later, a caveman goes hunting a wild boar or saber-toothed tiger for food. But you, my friend, have stepped on all the tigers in that region. By stepping on one single mouse, a caveman starves, a man who is an entire future nation. From his loins could spring an entire civilization, an entire race. You stomped on one single mouse and changed history. Hey, you, I mean, you're joking, of course. No, I think he's got a point. Look. Step on a mouse and you crush the pyramids. You leave a footprint like the Grand Canyon across history. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington might never cross the Delaware. There might never even be a United States at all. So be careful, all of you. Stay on the path. Don't ever step off. So what you're saying is for us not even to touch the grass. 
That's right. A little error here could multiply everything out of proportion in 50 million years. I see. Of course, maybe our theory is wrong. Well, then you're guessing. Well, of course we're guessing. Anyone who claims to know is a fool. But until we do know if messing around with time can change history, we're being careful. Very careful. Wade, explain the hunting procedure. All right. As you know, this machine, the path, your clothing and bodies were sterilized before we left home base. We'll also wear these oxygen helmets to avoid contamination of the ancient atmosphere. We wouldn't want you to breathe any bacteria or germs into the air. I brushed my teeth this morning. <laughs> yes, but how would you like to breathe in an ancient spore for which you have no immunity? You could start an epidemic back home. Hey, say, how do we know which animal to shoot? Good question. They're marked with red paint. Paint? Yes. This morning before our journey, I sent Wade here back in the machine. He came to this era and followed certain dinosaurs. Well, you studied them? Right. I tracked them through their entire existence with the help of the time machine and find out how long they live, how often they mate, and so on. When I find one that's going to die when a tree falls on him or one that drowns in a tar pit, I note the exact hour, minute, and second. Then I shoot a paint bomb. It leaves a red patch on his hide. We can't miss it. Then I compute our arrival in the past, so we meet the monster not more than four to six minutes before he would have died anyway. That way, we kill only animals with no future, those that'll never mate again. You see how careful we are, Eccles? But if Wade came back this morning in time, he must have bumped into us, uh, our safari. Hey, how, how did it turn out? Was it a success? <laughs> well, that would be a paradox. Time just doesn't permit that sort of mess, man meeting himself. When that sort of thing is about to occur, time just steps aside. I don't understand. Well, it's like a plane hitting a bump of air. You felt the machine jump just before we stopped? Yeah. Well, that was us passing ourselves on the way back to the future. It just sort of skipped over that part. So there's no way of telling what happened, if we got our dinosaur or if we even got out alive. All right, it's time. Everyone on his feet. Put on your helmets. One last thing. Yeah? If anything goes wrong, anything at all, walk quickly back to the machine and wait inside. No one's ever died on one of my safaris, and I won't let any weekend hunters spoil that record. Understand? Yeah. Check your rifles. Wade, open the forward hatch. Yes, sir. Okay. Let's go. Look at the trees and plants. There's nothing like this back home. This is home, Eccles. Just a bit before your time. Hey, look at that. Giant bats. Not bats, pterodactyls. I could pick those off without even aiming, just like duck hunting back home. Stop that. Don't point your gun, not even for fun. If that thing should go off... The safety's on. I know what I'm doing. You'd love to see me shoot a lizard and wind up in jail, wouldn't you? Or step off the path and pay another 10000 Wouldn't you, Travis? You're wasting oxygen, Nichols. 
You say, where's our Tyrannosaurus? Up ahead. We'll intersect his path in 90 seconds. Look for the red paint. And don't shoot till we give the word. And stay on the path. Strange. Up ahead, 50 million years from now, election day finally over, Keith made president. Everybody's celebrating now. I'll say. Millions of people crowding into bars, letting their hair down, getting drunk. Everybody looking ahead to the next four years before the next election. And here we are, a million years lost, and they don't even exist. The things we worried about for months, years, haven't even been thought about. And no one's cooked the first meal yet, stood on a hill and watched the sunset. Makes you feel kind of lonely. Safety catches off, everyone. I've hunted tiger, wild boar, even elephants. But this is it, the ultimate big game. I and mean, look at me. <laughs> I'm shaking like a kid. <laughs> Ten seconds. Eccles, huh? you shoot first. Second Billings. Third Kramer. Got it? Got it. Eccles? Yeah, I got it. Hold it. Ahead. Through the mist. There he is. There's his royal majesty. It can't be. Hey, that, that thing could touch the moon. Shh. Hasn't seen us yet. It can't be killed. Oh, I was wrong. We were fools to come. Shut up. It's a nightmare. Echo. Walk quietly and calmly back to the machine. We'll remit half your fee, no questions asked. Just do it. I, I, I miscalculated. I, I didn't realize it would be this big. It's too big. Get me out of here, Travis. No. It sees us. There's a red pair on its chest. Hey, get me out of here. It was never like this before. I've met my match. I admit it. I, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Echo, don't run. Not that way, Echoes. Echo, stay on the path. The master. Shooting. Shooting in the head. I got him. He, he's not going down. He will. He's falling. Watch out! It's... It's really dead. No, it's dead, all right. That was a little too close. Here, here's a rag. Wipe the blood off. Wade, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. Here, better wipe yourself off, too. Wade Eccles is in the machine. Get him back here. Travis, watch out! The tree! 
Right on time. That's the tree that was scheduled to fall and kill this animal. We just saved it the trouble. Look at that beast. I've never seen anything so massive in my life. Ten tons of cold flesh, at least. You want the trophy picture, Billings? Huh? Well, we can't take this thing back to the future with us. The body has to stay right here where it originally fell, so the insects and birds can get to it as they were intended to. Everything in balance. But we can take a picture of you and Kramer standing next to it. I don't think so, Travis. Hey, here comes Eccles. Travis. Tra Travis. I I'm sorry. Believe me. Eccles, you almost killed us all. Travis, all save it. You're not coming back. We're leaving hey, you. You can't do that. Stay out of this, Kramer. Eccles panicked, like I knew he would. And look at his shoes. Look at them. He ran off the path. He's ruined us. We'll lose our licenses travel, and who knows what this imbecile's done to time, to history. Take it easy. All he did was kick up some dirt. How do we know that? We don't know anything. It's all a mystery. I, I, I pay anything. Ten thousand. A hundred thousand. No one has to know. Walk over there, Eccles, next to the monster. Stick your arms up to your elbows in his mouth. Then you can come back with us. Now, wait a minute... The monster's dead, you yellow coward. We need the bullets back. They can't be left behind. They don't belong in the past. Here's my knife. Go over there and dig them out. All of them. Give me that. You didn't have to make him do that. Didn't I? He'll live. Next time, he'll know better. And stick to hunting jackrabbits. Come on, we'll wait for him in the machine. Everyone strap in. Wade, secure the hatch. Yes, sir. Travis. Nine shots. Nine bullets. Take them. Strap in, Eccles. Everything's secure. Is it? Switch on. Let's go home. Nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand fifty five. We're home. Hey, 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 don't, don't, don't look at me like that. I, I haven't done anything. So, so, so I stepped on some dirt. So what? I got a little mud on my shoes. Big deal. I mean, what, what do you want me to do? Shut up, Eccles. Open the hatch. Travis. I'll pay anything. I mean it. You know something, Eccles? I might just kill you yet. Get out! Hey. Everything all right here? Fine. Welcome home. 
You're sure? Well, of course I'm sure. You know something we don't? Okay, Eccles. You're one lucky guy. Now get out of here. Don't ever come back, ever. Eccles, did you hear me? What are you staring at? Travis. The sign. What sign? On the wall. Read it. Time Safari Inc. Safaris to any year in the past? You name the animal? Take you there? You shoot it? Spelling. It's all wrong. And the letters. Different alphabet. Small. It can't be. Not a little thing like that. Spawner, who won the presidential election yesterday? What? Are you kidding? Who won? Well, you know who won. Deutscher, of course. Who else? Not that weakling Keith. Deutscher? Yeah, we got an iron man now. A man with guts. What's wrong with you, anyway? Eccles. Look at the bottom of your shoe. There. In the mud. What is it? A butterfly. A dead butterfly. What's wrong with you people? You can't be. Not, not a little thing like a butterfly. Not, not, not a little thing like that. A butterfly. Well, okay, can we go back? I mean, can, can we make a live again? Okay, can, can we start over? Come on! Can, can, it was just a small thing. A small thing that could upset balances and knock down a line of small dominoes and then big dominoes and then gigantic dominoes all down the years across time. The Sound of Thunder was adapted from the story by Ray Bradbury. Featured in the cast were Max Robinson, Bryce Chamberlain, Jay Bernard, Jeff Rader, Dwayne Hyatt, and Jennifer Olawson. Original music by Roger Hoffman and Greg Hansen. Production assistant was Patrick Mead. Associate producer was Jeff Rader. Bradbury 13 was created, produced, and directed by Mike McDonough. Executive producer was Dean Van Eitert. This program was produced with the funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting through National Public Radio Satellite Program Development Fund. The program was produced by Brigham Young University Media Services, which is solely responsible for its content. This is Paul Fries speaking. And that was A Sound of Thunder, part of Bradbury 13. 13 more, well, 12 more tales um, from that. They're available at twilightzoneradio.com. A link on the homepage to purchase more at the ridiculously cheap price of $2 per MP3 download, worth every penny, believe me. And we're going to get right into an interview with a producer of that serial from uh, many years ago, Mike McDonough, who now talks to us, having had a very rich and mature career in sound design. Here we go.
All right, well, we've got the huge pleasure today to welcome Michael McDonough. He's a Peabody Award-winning sound designer, got a wealth of film credits to his name, including two Star Trek movies, uh, Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Insurrection. I uh, did The Demolition Man and over a dozen IMAX pictures, as well as um, all kinds of other work in uh, television, other films. Um, but uh, what's kind of fun about it is that before all this, before the work in uh, TV and film, he produced one of uh, what I consider the finest radio drama programs out there, um, certainly um, one of the most interesting that ever aired on NPR, which is Bradbury 13, a uh, piece that was really hard to hear for many, many years, but now has been re-released. Um, it is certainly something that rivals uh, any adaptation of Bradbury's work for radio and possibly any other medium. It's a great, great stereo recordings, 13 shows, and uh, in light of that, we're going to talk a bit more today. Uh, Michael, welcome to Radio Drum Revival. Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you. Uh, so I, there, there are a few different histories about Bradbury 13 that are floating around there on the internet, but I, I'm wondering if I could, uh, in your words, tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and how, um, it came to be that you, you got involved in this series and, and, uh, you know, a little bit about how, uh, what made it happen. Well, it's, it's I, I find it interesting that, that there's this sort of this revival of something that I did at the beginning of my career, you know, clear back in, uh, in the early eighties is when, is when I uh, when I did the series, and uh, I believe it came out and uh, was broadcast on NPR, uh, something called Nash, National Public Radio Playhouse, NPR Playhouse, in 1984. So uh, here it is, all these years later. Yeah. <laughs> something I did when I was when I was much younger, and was really my first and only foray into, I guess, what you call radio or, or radio drama, and, uh, and and here all these years later. People want to hear it again, which which I which is really which is really fun and interesting to me. Um, yeah, because we, we also yeah, and you also have this interesting thing where radio drama, you know, it's the you know title of my show, radio drama is trying to revive, and um, and, and you know, and there's there's this this sort of is, you know this piece has been out there. I understand it's been you know passed around sort of uh, an underground for a while, and now finally we've got a, a, a real nice uh, quality recording of it out. Right. Yeah, we uh, the the way the way this came about is uh, in in the uh, in the early late seventies and early eighties, I was uh, working at uh, as the uh, an employee of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and uh, the the university, which is uh, owned by the uh, the LDS, the Mormon Church, at the time they had a production of, of a movie studio down there, an actual film studio with two sound stages and and that sort of thing, and I was uh, running the sound department at the time. That was kind of my my, my job, my full-time job then at that point in my life. And um, uh, I was uh, I, I was very, you know, that's back before computers, if you can imagine. <laughs> back, before, back before, you know, digital didn't exist. It was all, you know, analog. It was reel-to-reels. Uh, you know, we, we, the recording studio was traditional, uh, we had a traditional recording studio, a big room with, with microphones and a control room with a console, and we recorded back then on on 24-track audio tape, which is was two inches wide, big giant rolls of audio tape. Uh, it's very exotic, very expensive uh, equipment. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear. And um, I was always interested uh, growing up in Los Angeles, uh, like like I did. In uh, in movies, my dad worked in Hollywood, uh, in the printing industry. But he was, you know, there, and I'd sometimes go in on Saturdays when he had overtime and just sort of hang out in Hollywood. And uh, grew up 
in the 60s watching all the old crazy science fiction movies, monster movies, and the things that they, you know, all those, all those fun things that they made back then. And was always interested in sound, you know, probably because I didn't have good eyesight. I, I didn't relate to visuals that well, but, but I sure related to sound, so I was always interested in it. And uh, in high school, and just backtrack a bit, in, in high school, I had an opportunity to go to a, a lecture at Whittier, um, the Whittier Public Library there in Southern California, to hear uh, Ray Bradbury speak. And he spoke to, spoke to a, a fairly small group of people. There were, I don't know, maybe 30 or so of us that, that went to hear him speak. And uh, the, the person that arranged him to come out there to speak at the library was a friend of, of a friend of mine. And so after the lecture, since Ray never had a driver's license, never drove an automobile, she had to drive him back to, uh, to his home in West, West Los Angeles. So she invited my friend and I to ride along with him. So we hopped in the back of the car with Ray Bradbury and got to visit with him for a good 45-minute trip uh, back to his home to drop him off. And we were like, I don't know, uh, my friend and I were maybe 15 years old, 14, 15 years old, something like that. And uh, he was very nice, very friendly, very encouraging of us to follow our dreams and find out what we want to do in our lives and just do it, and then we'd be happy, which I thought was you know, pretty good advice at the time. So uh, my friend and I, you know, we had a couple of tape recorders, and we, we would like to we, we'd get together with some other friends and, uh, and, and do these little, these little radio dramas. We'd just make up scripts and put in sound effects off of records and music off of movie soundtracks and make these little dramas. So we started doing some of Ray Bradbury's work uh, with his blessing, and we would, we would, uh, I would adapt some of his short stories, produce little radio dramas, and we'd send them to him, and he'd listen to them with his friends and get a kick out of them. So then that transitioned to to more. Yeah, yeah. L- years later, when uh, after college, uh, uh, when I was working there at the university, a, uh, um, we had the opportunity to get a, a grant from from uh, National Public Radio uh, to. Uh, and we applied for a grant, and we got it to produce uh, 13 Ray Bradbury stories. And that's how it all started. And we also received money from uh, NPR Playhouse, which kicked in some money. So we had, a, at the time, a pretty healthy budget. We had, a, we had $130,000, which is a lot of money back then. Yeah, it's more. <laughs> yeah. So I spent the next year or so, uh, this is what I did. I sort of took a leave of absence from my job, my regular duties there at the studio, and I, I, I picked out 13 of Ray's stories. I wrote the scripts, adapted them, and uh, produced, uh, cast them, hired composers to do original, original score, went out, recorded sound effects, and, uh, and directed the actors and, bas- and eventually put them all together into half-hour, 28-minute uh, long shows. And it was a huge labor of love. It was about killed me to do it, but... Uh, um, it was a lot of fun, and ultimately it was broadcast on several hundred radio stations, and, and that year was nominated for a Peabody Award and went back to New York and, and accepted the award for the best, uh, uh, best production of the year. So it was a pretty fun ride. Yeah, that's just a spectacular story. Um, and, and so fun to be able to work with Bradbury. And I, and I wonder... I, um, no, did the fact that Bradbury's work had been adapted in you know in the old time radio days did that affect either your choice of stories to produce or the way that you uh, uh, treated certain stories that you did adapt? Well, um, I didn't grow up in the radio era, unfortunately. I was a little bit too old. 
to to listen to radio. You know, I grew up with TV, so I never listened to radio. I never heard radio drama before I did these. So, you know, I, I just knew that they used to do radio drama back in the 40s, uh, 30s and 40s, and even in the 50s. Uh, but it didn't influence me in the slightest because I never heard any of it. So the approach I took to the Bradbury stories was more of a cinematic approach. That's how I designed the scripts. I designed the scripts to be almost like uh, try to give the listener an experience of watching a film without seeing the visuals. So the film is really in your imagination. So if you, when you listen to them, you'll notice... There's a lot of uh, just the, the style of writing, the editorial style, and, and the, the, the way they're put together is, is more film-oriented than radio-oriented, at least in my opinion. Um, and I tried to give them a very full soundtrack with lots of sound effects. We even did, uh, you know, we even, we even decided to do Foley, which is, the, you know, recreate the sound of footsteps, which is a film process. So after the whole show was put together, um, I saved a couple of tracks on the 24-track tape machine. We saved, I think, tracks 22 and 23. We left those open. And we would go back and put on headphones at the very beginning of the show. And a couple of us would, would listen to what was going on, and we would uh, walk in place. We'd walk on cement and dirt and tile and whatever, and, and we would do the footsteps of them, you know, maybe exiting the scene or coming into the scene or moving around and, that gave it that real uh, sort of cinematic um, feeling to it. So uh, I, I would say I was more, in, more oriented towards film rather than inspired by any radio dramas that had been done. So Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's great because it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the, obviously in the old, time, the old time radio era, there wasn't really, you know, uh, stereo, which is, is used, you know, heartily uh, and, and to great effect. Um, and, and one that just from a, adaptation standpoint um you know i was looking at the story of the velt and it's a fairly short uh you know the, the short story is only like something like eight pages and i i went back and listened to the x minus one version and and they f- you know they they do something very different than than your interpretation they have a very prominent narrator and they they keep in um a lot of very nice uh narration that was that was description but but yours doesn't you you take a different tack which i think actually works a lot better in that you sort of create scenes, so there's there's little pieces of information that are hard to communicate. Uh, you know, when as soon as you get rid of that uh, description element, and you know, there are different ways of approaching it. And and yours seem to be, uh, you know, there's a couple additional scenes. There's some different ways that the scenes are realized. And I I wonder if you mentioned a little bit about that. You know, just in terms of of you know how do you make it fit a slot? It's a, it's you know the story's a little bit too short, and you how do you get it to breathe when you need uh, more more room and you know more material. Not having grown up with a radio drama as a background, um, I, uh, you know, when I when I visualized, imagined these stories, I didn't want to depend on a narrator. The only narrator I wanted was I wanted a narration to set the scene at the beginning, you know, by uh, generally taking a few lines of the story and having him read them at the beginning, just to kind of wet her whistle. And then we go into the story, and then sometimes at the end, I would have the narrator kind of wrap things up with a, just a, a little paragraph. But the body of the show all happens uh, in the first person, and I think it, it helps pull the uh, listener in. You know, the listeners, it's like reading a book. You know, you're, you're, you're hearing these, these audio cues from the actors, from the music, from the sound effects, and, and then your mind just simply takes over and paints the picture, and it becomes much more intimate uh, for the listener to 
put the pieces together rather than have some, you know, some big voice telling you what's going on. And then you're, you know, that's just a very passive thing to have somebody saying, then they went into the city and found this and found that. You know, instead of doing that, you know, I would have, uh, I would have the sound of the footsteps and I would have, a, you know, sound effects, uh, painting a picture and some, uh, uh, and the actors sort of let you know what's going on with their dialogue. I think, to me, that was the most interesting part of doing this. You know, you've gotten a lot of, uh, and I had, you know, very well-deserved praise for the sound design work on this series. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you knew about sound design going into this project and, and what you learned and kind of just the whole approach towards making the, the wonderful, rich sound world that we, that we have in Bradbury 13? Yeah, I think uh, um, having always had this fascination with sound, from the time I was eight years old, I started recording sounds. And I wasn't too interested in recording music or, or the spoken word or anything, but I, I love I loved the idea of going out with my portable recorders when I was even, you know, 14, 15 years old, and just capturing the sound of cars driving by, maybe a mockingbird singing on a telephone wire out back, maybe a thunderclap. So I was sort of driven to just capture sounds and to just, uh, I guess, start building a sound effects library. Uh, the only things that were available back when we did this were sound effects records. And, of course, you know, they're, they're just the same old sounds that everybody hears. I didn't want to put anything in the show that had ever been heard before. So I, I just collected sounds. I went out and recorded things, uh, had to dream up. Uh, the, you know, for instance, in, in Kaleidoscope, there's the sound of a meteor flying, shooting by and severing. Uh, you know, somebody's helmet and that sort of thing, and the guy dies because all the air leaves. And I think I went out and, and got, a, got some illegal skyrockets <laughs> and fireworks and went out to the desert and recorded them, you know, shooting and shooting by and, and, and just made, made all the sounds for this. Hollis, Hollis, this is Applegate. You won't believe this, but... Applegate, what is it? Hollis, he's here. What? Stimson, he's, he's, he's floating toward me. I, I can see him. I can see him. He's down. We're getting closer. Hey, Stimson! Stimson, can you hear me? A long way down. Falling a long way down. Help me! I'll help you, Stimson. I don't like being here. You I don't like being here. You won't be, Stimson. Not much longer. Applegate, for heaven's sakes, what's happening? I want to be somewhere else. You will, I promise. You Applegate! Help me, please. He's help getting me. closer, Hollis. He's floating near me. I, I, I can help almost... Me. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'll help you, Stimson. Someone, someone, please, please, please. Applegate, what? I've about got him, just about. Help me. I don't, I don't want to be here. Do something, help me. I've got him. Please, help me, help me. He's gone. What do you mean, gone? Smashed his helmet. Um, and I, I and I, I wonder if you'll you'll um, give a little secret of the trade. Do you want to talk a bit about specifically the the Tyrannosaurus Rex and a sound of thunder like that? Just enormously monstrous uh, creature. Oh boy! Say, you know, I did this so long ago that uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could remember. Well, yeah, yeah. This is like way way before Jurassic Park, but oh yeah, uh, way you know, way way before. And, that. And, <laughs> and maybe something that even informed how people did dinosaurs in the future. I'm not. I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, this was way before Jurassic Park and way before any of those shows. And, and so, yeah, they had to make the sound of this giant Tyrannosaurus Rex. And uh, I think what I did is, uh, you know, basically I wanted to base it on animal sounds. 
Um, and so I went about just, you know, just trying to figure out how can I record some good animal sounds. And living in Utah back, you know, back then, there weren't quite as many people as they're here. I mean, back then, I think the whole state of Utah only had a million people in it. Now we're, you know, maybe up to three million. But um, so there was a lot of open space, and, and uh, it was fairly quiet back then. And I, I, I remember just finding out about this old derelict kind of guy that that had held animals that he collected, and he would go around to the supermarkets and and get the you know get the produce that they threw out to feed these animals. And in his backyard, he had cages, and he had a couple of mountain lions, and he had some badgers, and he had various wild animals. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, I gave him uh, you know a little a little incentive, a little money to buy food for his animals, and I got to spend you know hours recording these things. And I went to, uh, I, I think that particular, I don't know if I should tell these trade secrets, <laughs> long <laughs> enough ago, I guess I can. That, the the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the main sound of that is a, uh, is, is a horse that uh, was, um, you know, in heat. And it was just that time of year, and, and this guy had some horses, and he says, well, I, I can make this horse go crazy if I just walk this female horse in front of him. And he did, and the horse just reared up, and it made all these guttural, you know, sounds that I've never heard a horse make before, and uh, you know, kind of scary. And so I took those and I slowed them down, and I added some other wild animals to it, and came up with the sound of this uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. It can't be. Hey, that that thing could touch the moon. Shh. Hasn't seen us yet. It can't be killed. I was wrong. We were fools to come. Shut up. It's a nightmare. Echo. Wow. Well, and that's I guess when 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 where you really earn the the phrase sound designer is like you take you you capture these bits from the real world and then you you work a bit of magic on it to make it a T Rex. It's amazing. Exactly, and that sort of led into my you know my current career as a, as a full time sound designer for for movies and. Uh, various projects. After I did the Bradbury series, uh, uh, I realized that radio drama was back, was basically dead, at least in this country. The only thing that was on the air back then was the CBS Mystery Theater, you know, Hyman Brown's show, and uh, uh, and that was it. So I thought, well, I can't make a living doing radio drama, even though I won a Peabody Award for it. So I better go into film because I can make a living doing sound in in, in film, and that's that's how I got into doing what I do now. Oh. And and I guess j- just in terms of principally the skills, like the the going out in the real world and collecting sounds, manipulating them, um, you know, in, in a sound uh, post production environment. I mean, how how much crossover is there from the type of work that you did for Bradbury Thirteen and what a professional sound designer does? It's exactly the same. I mean, there, there's absolutely no difference. You know, here, here I am still, you know, going out uh, trying to record sounds. I I, I even carry a now that the digital world has made things much more convenient, we don't, uh, you know, I used to have to lug around a, a, a Swiss-made reel-to-reel called a Nagra. And this Nagra, uh, you know, is used in the film industry to record dialogue and won a special Academy Award. So I bought one. I bought a stereo version. And it, it, it required 12 D-cells. Well, just, you know, a dozen D-cells is you know, that's heavy. But I, I lugged that thing around. I, I took it to Europe. I took it on trains and airplanes. I even snuck it into Disneyland once and got on the Mark Twain boat and got up, went upstairs to right where the bell and the, uh, 
and the steam whistle are. I recorded the steam whistle and the bell to use in a uh, movie of the week that was on, uh, I think, NBC. And, you know, this wasn't a small, lightweight machine. This was, you know, it, it just killed you to carry the thing around. But uh, now we have these small, handheld, digital devices that are very high quality. And I always carry one. Uh, in fact, we're going to Europe in a couple months, and I'll, I'll take this with me. And uh, it, it's it's still, the, you know, it's exactly the same, going out and recording sounds to use in shows. So, Mike, so uh, so sadly we, we don't have more radio drama um uh, about for you, but are, are there any interesting projects in film or TV out there that you can uh, turn people on? I, I, I see on your website you're also uh, working into the online role-playing game area. Yeah, I sort of got into that last year. Um, what, I, what I've been doing primarily, primarily for the last 20 years was um, uh, local, low-budget shows, and also I've done uh, uh, over 20 large-format IMAX films. And uh, In fact, I just barely finished uh, next week we'll finish my, uh, I think it's my 21st IMAX film. It's called Tornado Alley. Uh, it's being released by Giant Screen Films. And it's an IMAX film about, uh, about this guy who's built this uh, special vehicle to chase uh, tornadoes with. And uh, it actually burls itself down into the ground. And he has an IMAX camera in a turret on this thing. It's like the Batmobile, an armored Batmobile. And he drives into tornadoes and films them. And so this is an IMAX film about him doing this and some of the results that he got of these giant tornadoes, uh, you know, parking his vehicle inside of one as, as it goes by. And uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating. An IMAX film is, uh, is always filmed with no sound because the camera's very noisy. So literally for 40 minutes, I've had to create every sound in this show, every vehicle, all the tornadoes, all the destruction, I've been pulling from my sound effects library, which is now, of course, all in a database, and there's about, I think I have about 70, 75,000 sounds in it now. And, uh, and that's, that's my raw material, and I take those sounds and I manipulate them and slow them down, play them backwards and add things to them, and that's, that's what we do. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk to us about it. Um, you know, Bradbury 13, as well as your work in, in sound design, uh, you know, maybe some of us other producers in, in the radio drama land may, may take your inspiration to, to move into film or, or at least to know that the skills they're, they're getting doing radio dramas may be for fun, but there's also, you know, people use that. Um, and yeah, and, and uh, you know, just talk a little bit about, about that time in your life. Um, thanks so much. You're welcome. I, I'm, I'm happy, happy to do it. All right. Thank you, Mike McDonough. Um, again, you can get more uh, Bradbury 13 downloads at twilightzoneradio.com. on link right there on the homepage to purchase more ridiculously cheap price, $2 per MP3 download. And believe me, it's worth every penny. Uh, and if you want to learn more about Mike McDonough, Google his name. You'll find all the films he's been involved with. Um, all of them are now on my short list. Uh, Try to pick up a few tricks of the trade, hear how, hear how it's done. It's pretty fascinating stuff to work in, in sound. Um, yeah. So anyways, uh, next week we do continue our uh, series of top shelf radio dramas. We sort of moving into a different um, theme, three weeks of a compelling original series from the BBC called Severed Threads, um, three 45-minute episodes. Got the chance to do some field recording myself on that show and it was record- recorded in New York City last August uh, with producer and writer John Dryden. Believe me, it's an amazing piece. Three lives, three continents, three stories, all intertwined. Um, in the meantime, in the meantime... 
Uh, remember, you can find over 150 hours of original audio drama programming at radiodramarevival.com. You can learn all about the latest in audio drama news by following us on Twitter. Hit up at Radiodrama. Search Facebook for Radio Drama Revival. Got a page on there. Or iTunes. Hit up Radio Drama Revival. Please leave a review if you are so inclined to talk up the show. Um, all right, that wraps it up this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG, Greater Portland, Maine's Community Radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. 